Welcome to Solar Tech Talk, where we nerd out about solar energy technology, industry news, and policy. My name is Aaron Bingham. I'm product manager with BayWARE. And my name is Tierney Marsh. I'm a strategic account manager here at BayWARE. Tierney, how's it going? Uh, hello, it's the solar coaster. It's going great. How are you doing, Aaron? <laughs> I'm doing all right. It's It's been a crazy 2022 so far. I think this is our, our first episode um, since, since we last saw each other at the end of last year. And I can already tell that this year is going to be nuts. I cannot list on... I don't have enough digits to list all of like the solar curves that have been happening of late. It's been it's been a year in the last two months, so <laughs> it's been fun. I'm glad it's not just me feeling that way. <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone. Yeah. Let's uh, let's let's recap for our audience what's been happening. Um, so maybe we can take a quick look at what happened in 2021 and, you know, do it with an eye to what's coming up for us right now in 2022. When we think about major market events in 2021, what are some of the, what are some of the things that come to mind for you, Tierney? Yeah, well, the first thing that comes to mind is in 2021, we saw a lot of evidence of a maturing industry, right? Uh, we saw lots of market consolidation, right? We've seen organizations like SunPro merging with ADT Home and other conglomerates kind of moving into the space and figuring out how they can bring their organization into the next level, right? Into the renewable energy space, getting in on that smart home technology and just kind of moving their operations forward. So there's lots of integration with smart home and that's that's really helping installers that we work with level up on moving beyond solar, right? So just kind of integrating everything, bringing more storage into it, and it's it's been it's been exciting to see to see how that's moved forward. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to hear you say that. I I for a while now have been of the opinion that our industry is currently undergoing a shift, right? We used to be an industry that was all about just generating electrons from the sun. That's what we do, that's what we're here for. That's still a big part of the solar industry. But over the last year or two years, energy storage has become such a big factor in PV installations. It's really changed the playbook for installers in terms of the conversations that they're having with potential system owners or customers in general. You know, as far as system financing goes, it's already having an impact there as well. You know, for a relatively new technology, it's it's something that's having an outsized impact for the amount of time that some of these products have been in the market. Right on the heels of energy storage, we've seen things move towards, uh, you know, there's kind of an industry mantra of we're not just generating electrons, we're making it so that folks can control where their electrons go. Um, so energy management came in kind of as a part of that conversation around energy storage, but increasingly energy management tools are what are what are driving some of the value adds that folks are selling on when they're having conversations with potential system owners about installing a solar energy system. It's, it's not just we can install modules that will generate power, it's we can install modules and batteries and the system that will make it so that you can control where your power is going and how it's being used. Yeah, I think a lot of communities, either you know on that homeowner level or on that grander scale, are really interested in microgrids and being able to have that control, right? It goes back to our American individualism and ownership ethos and and all these things that that are in our culture that really that are really allowing that to drive forward a little bit more so it's it's been fun to see how that how that progresses and 
and yeah, it's 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 really fun chatting with installers about it too, because they're they're learning all this stuff along with us, and and we're using this and and you know specific sales reps, but also this kind of podcast space to help educate everybody, so that we're we're all driving forward kind of at the same pace, or you know running, walking, all that. Yeah, stuff. trying to trying to bring everybody along on the ride. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and you know it it creates this interesting dynamic because I, I think we've seen some of the impacts of the, the 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 changing conversation that installers are having with system owners at the at the policy level, especially in terms of some of the policies that we've seen utilities pushing for in the last year or so. In California, we saw uh, a big fight around the policies that govern who's allowed to install solar plus energy storage systems within the state. We also saw a big fight within the California legislative body around NEM3 and a proposed new uh, net energy metering policy that would allow utilities to implement monthly fees for solar customers, that would allow utilities to drastically reduce the compensation that customers have for sending power back out to the grid. And, and it would have really allowed utilities to kind of take advantage of solar energy customers and, and installers in a way that would have left a lot of folks unable to invest in solar energy just because it didn't make economic sense, right? Not everybody can do it just because it's, it's um, you know, the green thing to do, quote unquote. You know, seeing, seeing those kinds of policies get pushed ahead by, by different policymakers has been kind of distressing. And it's something that we all really have to be on the watch out for in 2022. The NEM 3.0 policy has, you know, it's been stayed for now. There's no decision right now, but that doesn't mean that it's off the table completely. That just means that we have to watch out for when that policy comes back up. And and, and likewise, there's a similar policy in Florida. Do you, do you know much about the Placeo policy that been impacting the, the conversation in the Florida market? I can't say that I know a lot about it. My customers are all across the country and it's really hard to keep an eye on what's happening in all the different <laughs> age. You know, one of the things that that really that I think I've said before that really speaks to me about what's going on in California and what's going on in Florida regarding net metering is that if these changes happen there, they might happen everywhere, right? And so that's a huge impact, not only on solar installers who operate in those markets, but those kinds of the, those policy changes can trickle out. And that would have a really huge impact, negative impact on our industry, on the jobs that we're creating and the positive change that we're making in terms of um, striving against environmental decline. So yeah. one of the things that is really exciting is that in Florida, we've been a part of the, at the forefront of bringing some energy around what's happening in that, in that fight together. And we're actually having a conversation later on with Clark Galloway, who's in Florida, who's one of our sales reps down there. And he's going to speak to, you know, what it was like to be on the ground at those rallies where, where all these solar installers came together to speak to their representatives and tell them, you know, this isn't, this isn't okay. This is, these are a lot of jobs on the line. I think it's just really important to, to kind of keep a broad perspective when you're talking about these policy issues. It, it absolutely is. And, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens in, in coming months with these conversations. So we'll be really excited to, to report on these things for all of our listeners and make sure that everyone is as up to date as we can as we can get them to be. Another policy issue that we're keeping an eye on or we're going to be keeping an eye on as we go through 2022 is the 
build back better conversation and and whatever that ends up turning into right now there hasn't been a lot of news i think the news has been kind of dominated by world events you know there's the the war in ukraine right now when congress is able to resume uh conversations about what's next for our, our country's broader policy in terms of building back our economy in a way that's going to be a little bit more sustainable. We're, we're definitely going to be excited about reporting on that. But it has been quite a roller coaster. It's been a big up and down, right? And and we've seen a ton of strain on our industry that I think it's fair to say is being driven by largely external factors, right? Um, the cost of shipping, um, the difficulty of moving products around, making sure that things are in the right place at the right time so that production can happen as expected has really been a challenge for a, a lot of manufacturers around the globe, not just those in the PV industry. And it's led to some pretty surprising outcomes in recent weeks. I was really shocked and saddened to see LG's recent announcement that they've decided to exit the solar industry altogether. The US LG solar team has been a fantastic partner to Baywa for many years now. We've grown side by side and their, their product is hands down one of the best products on the market available today. So to to have them exiting the market and kind of removing that high bar when it comes to product development and execution, you know, I, th I think most folks in the industry feel like it's it's our industry is not going to be better off for it. You know, there's there's less competition, but to have LG out there really holding the bar high and delivering the products that they were able to deliver with the service that they were able to deliver, it's it's really sad to think that going forward we won't we won't have them as a partner. Baywa won't have them as a partner, but all of the homeowners who have LG installed on their roofs will, right? LG is a name brand. You have LG refrigerators and TVs and washing machines and all these other things. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. It's just that they've made the economic decision to leave solar, which for us is sad. Um, but it means that your, your warranty is super solid if you have LG on your house. And it means that all these people who have been able to take advantage of that have the creme de la creme. Like you were saying before, LG is really the gold standard in terms of, you know, efficiency and customer service. And it's just, it's sad to see them go. It'll be interesting to see what, what comes in play here, but you know, it's the solar coaster. Things change on just so quickly. We'll see what happens next. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know from my conversations with the LG team, they are absolutely making plans to support their product warranties in the long term. Oh, yeah. Um, so what's sad about it is, you know, once once customers no longer have access to these modules, that's it. This is a great product that folks who have been able to um, buy so far and, and will be able to buy through the end of the year are really going to benefit for the entire lifetime of the module. It's you know, it is one of the best modules on the market today. So Aaron, you've been around quite a bit longer than me here in this space. Uh, is there anybody at LG that you want to give a little shout out to, send them a little love? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm really going to miss um, working with Christopher Mitchell day to day, who is our, our main point of contact over there on the LG team. He was the, the person who we worked with directly to make sure that all of our orders were arriving where they should, were on time, and that um, we had as much of the information as we needed from the broader LG organization in, in order to make sure that we were making the most of our partnership together. David Chang also has been a fantastic partner to us. He has been leading the LG uh, US team for a few years now. And under his leadership, the, the team really 
developed into this nationwide partner that we worked with in every region very, very closely. It really was a wonderful partnership in large part because of his leadership and his, his style. Um, there, there are tons of names that I, that I could say. I think one more person that's just kind of a personal favorite of mine and, and a, a family favorite here at Baywa is Sarah Gaddis. Um, you know, she, she was on the team and she was one of the, the first uh, manufacturing partner employees that I met in my role, you know, as a, as a the new Baywa RE product manager. And we connected right away. Um, she has this really affable style and she's very down to earth, wonderful to work with. So I'm sure I'll be crossing paths with them and everybody else on the LG team who I didn't get a chance to give a shout out to in the future. But it's a sad, sad day to know that in the future, you know, we won't be seeing them all in one place. Uh, well, it's going to be sad to see the LG team go, but as you said, we're going to, we're going to see them around with different logos on their chests. So, yeah, going to keep um, on, keep on trucking and, and forging new partnerships too. Indeed. So I'm going to go ahead and pivot. We actually have some new vendors that we're going to be releasing here in the next little bit. And we're highlighting one in particular today. We're going to be talking with Panel Claw later in the episode, and they have some really awesome racking solutions. And we're going to really get into the weeds about what their solution is really excellent at and how it can be used by all of our customers. So I'm excited for that conversation coming up. Today, we're speaking with Paul Bitteroff, the VP of Sales for Panel Claw. We're really excited to have him on board today because we're actually launching this product. So, Paul, who is Panel Claw? What's going on with you? Uh, Tierney, thanks for having me. This is uh, really exciting. I'll be honest, it's my first podcast. Uh, I am uh, excited to be here and excited to be excited about this partnership with Baywa. Um, excited to have you. We've been working on it for a while, right? Uh, the, this has been in the in the works for about a year. For those of you that may not know much about Panaclaw, we've been in business since uh, around 2008, 2009. Based outside of Boston, we've been uh, focused exclusively on mid to large scale rooftop mounting solutions. We started off with distribution back in the day. Uh, we worked with Grow Solar when we were first launched. And then for the last several years, all the way until this partnership, we've been essentially selling direct to the top 100 EPCs and IPPs and installers that are doing you know, mid to large scale solar projects. And with this partnership here today, we hope to extend our reach and, uh, and introduce our brand and our product, CLIFR, to a wider audience. We're very excited about launching this as well. You know, it's it's been interesting that Panel Claw has been able to achieve massive success with some of the the largest EPC partners, as you mentioned, in in the U.S. Um, and and now you're partnering with Baywa to kind of expand that reach. Tell us a little bit more about what's driving the the move towards partnering with Baywa for wider distribution. Yeah, I mean, the short, simple, sort of blunt answer is that all we sell are flat roof racking products. We've got a disproportionate market share in that sort of mid to large size that we talked about. And so we are now trying to find a way to address parts of the country that we have not been traveling in, where we have not been uh, knocking on doors and candidly, where maybe they don't build, you know, 20 megawatts of flat roof projects every year. The reach that Baywa has, uh, the reputation, the other service suite that you offer beyond just racking, right? Module procurement, finance, uh, inventory, all of that's appealing to our partners, your partners, I should say. And, and candidly, right now, you know, Panelclaw has, you know, we rarely have material in stock. There's generally a short lead time to it. And customers that build, you know, maybe one or two flat roof 
projects a year that in that, you know, 50 to 300 kilowatt range, maybe would not want to work direct with us. They would prefer to work with an existing supplier like Baywa. So I think that's sort of the short answer to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. I should spend a, a couple of minutes too, maybe just talking a little bit more context-wise. Uh, our product, our hardware is called Claw FR. Um, we released it in 2019, and it was very, very quickly adopted by the majority of uh, the developers, the asset owners, and the even many of the end users here in the U.S. have standardized around Claw FR. And there's a, a bunch of features and benefits to Claw FR. And when we started brainstorming about this tech talk, like what do we want to talk about? We we quickly decided uh, let's not make this a product pitch, right? Let's talk broader about some of the things that our engineering team has been thinking about and, and hopefully help everybody understand a little bit more about some of the decisions that we've made and some of the questions they should be asking themselves as they're considering different mousetraps or different racking systems. I always call them mousetraps for like positioning these modules on the roof, right? So that's what I want to unpack here a little bit today. Aaron, we just did a webinar um, a couple of weeks ago, right? Where we went into features and benefits and, and why you might think of Claw FR. What are the component count? Um, what are the spacing options? We did all that. Yeah, a and lot of great details for our customers. There's plenty of information yeah. on our website, plenty of information on your website about why we think this product is so uh, is so compelling and why you should think about it. But today, I'd like to introduce your audience to Panel Claw, right? Talk to them a little bit about our our hardware, but really zero in on some of the other technical things that our team has been thinking about and, and you know, what differentiates us, I think, from uh, other racking companies that are a little bit broader in their focus. I sometimes talk about us having an unfair advantage because there's 30 or 40 people here at Panoclaw that are just focused on rooftop racking. And the majority of us have been here quite a long time. So we've got a fair amount of, um, you know, experience in this space that informs a lot of the decisions that we make. So, Paul, that leads me to think that your team is really agile. They're thinking about the next steps. They're trying to figure out what's going to be the best move forward. And that starts me thinking about Estec being your capital partner. Can you speak more about that ownership and what that means and what you're, you're planning to achieve? Yeah, for sure. Estec acquired Panelclaw in November 2020. And we joined other sister companies with, that are part of the Estec portfolio, Iron Ridge, EcoFasten and QuickMount. And so we're about a year and four or five months into, into this uh, acquisition. And um, it's been great, to be honest. It is, uh, we're sort of at this point now where we have the mentality and the focus of a startup, um, a, a group of seasoned people that have been thinking about this application for a long time, but now the support and the infrastructure of a larger multinational company behind us. It's exciting for those of us that have been uh, a part of Panelclaw when we were sort of grinding it out when we were a privately held company and now to see what part of a bigger mission is, is really exciting. The ESDAC operating model, just like our uh, you know, folks at uh, Iron Ridge would, would uh, agree with and EcoFasten is they basically provide us this um, back uh, of the house uh, support structure to help us uh, grow our business. The business units are focused on selling their product and, and satisfying their customers uh, and ESDAC uh, US here supports us in that. So what we have through our through ESDAC's acquisition of Panelclaw is access to more sophisticated systems internally, right? So we've updated our ERP system. Uh, we now have state-of-the-art uh, CRMs in place and, and the integration between ESDEC and what they, how they support us on the quality front and on the manufacturing front is now becoming more and more efficient. And they're also providing us access to, you know, deeper financial resources than we had when we were just independently held 
you know, North American racking provider. So that sort of level of bankability and, and financial backing is something that's important to our customers as uh, as our industry evolves, right? The professionalism and, and the professionalization of this industry is, is exciting. Uh, and now with ASDEC as a backer, we've got a roadmap for that. I can hear that excitement. That's very fun. Um, so do you have any specific goals for 2022 that you're planning, that you're looking forward to achieving? Yeah, the, the big thing for us uh, in 2022 is really uh, the digital experience. So um, we've been working uh, since the launch of CLAW-FR in 2019, we have had a, a, a design engine, uh, which has been used internally at PanelCLAW to uh, deliver all the CLAW-FR construction drawings and calculation packages that you've seen. With ESDEC support in 2022, we'll be, we'll be launching that software tool uh, out to a broader audience. So uh, the way that Claw OS, our software works today, you sort of have to be a, a, like a PhD in panel Claw to be able to operate this uh, design configurator. Um, later this year, it will be, the user interface will be simplified so that uh, our partners and, and Baywa will be able to uh, get on board and, and design their own drawings uh, and be able to create their own calculation sets and permit plan checks, uh, permit plan sets in real time, right? Right now, you're sort of subject to our bandwidth, uh, our lead times in, in the design department, and that won't be the case later on this year. That's exciting. As I understand it, we have a lot of folks who are, you know, really excited about using panel cloth for the first time, but they're running into that hiccup, right? That they need some help. So one of the things that we are we at Baywa are working on is kind of training up some of our um, some of our leaders in panel claw to kind of help merge that or make that transition really smooth for our customers and really allowing them to get a good foothold into with your with your product. And then when your OS system comes online, I think that's just going to make it so much better. So that's really exciting. That's right. We, we, we need someone at Baywa. They don't necessarily have to be a PhD in panel claw, mm -hmm. but they should at least have like a master's degree in panel claw. Yeah, and we're really excited about building out that capability to better support our customers who are going after some of those mid-sized commercial projects that PanelClaw really is a great option for, but that your team hasn't been able to service just because of, you know, uh, issues of scale, right? Have a team that's working on, you know, several gigawatt size projects and, and then, you know, uh, something that's a few hundred megawatts. It's a little harder to hit that radar, right? So we're really excited about building out that in-house capability to be able to support our, our panel claw sales and support your team um, to drive more volume. I like that you're thinking about rooftop in terms of gigawatts, Aaron. That's our <laughs> <Right>. goal too. <laughs> yeah. That's our goal too. That might, yeah be a little ways out. There are, guess there are <laughs> systems out there across multiple roofs, but yeah. <laughs> hey, we can dream, right? We can dream. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. I mean, one of the things that's going to help us get there is, is module sizes increasing. We've seen in the, in the last year in particular, but in, in the last couple of years, I guess in, in general, module size is a lot less consistent than it used to be. And, and within the last year or so specifically, we've seen as, as manufacturers have moved to a, an M10 um, cell for their baseline cell for their modules, that the module dimensions are wider. They're sometimes taller as well depending on how those cells are laid out and how many how many rows we're looking at what's the impact of larger module size on 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 using panel claw what, what what's something that customers should be keeping in mind and, and what's your team looking at when it comes to those mod larger module options entering the market and, and interfacing with your product more yeah, it's, it's a great question. There's a lot of thinking going on in that space right now. Uh, we've been, it's been on our radar. You know, we, we work pretty deeply with module manufacturers. One of the great things about our 
unique um, module attachment method is that it's it's forced us to become really really tight with the module manufacturers and so we've we've been hearing about these m10 and these m12 cells and how they're being incorporated into their fabs and what that impact is going to look like in terms of uh you know the module form factors we've been it's been on our radar for almost a year and a half now and so uh, over the course of 2021 i keep calling it we sort of supersized clifar we made the rails a little bit longer. We made the wind deflectors a little bit longer. And so that that is already done. The product that is in the market today, ClawFR, can accommodate modules up to two and a half meters long. I hate the cliche sort of future-proofed, but within reason, we think we've future-proofed ClawFR at least for the next two years or so, depending on, unless the module world gets even crazier than it has been. And that sounds really simple, right? Like I'm the I'm the sales guy out in the field. Um, hey guys, I need you to make the deflector a little bit longer. And they're like, uh, can you can you get out that deflector next week? And I'm like, uh, they're sorry, they answer me. Uh, no, Paul, that's going to take nine months worth of research and retooling and re-engineering. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And it turns out it's like it's all true because now because the modules are bigger, you've got you know larger spans between rails. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll spend a little bit of time later on talking about effective wind areas and load sharing and how you know the the, the mechanical properties of one racking system are vary from a different one, right? But we had to do all sorts of new testing, new tooling, and and all of that larger module form factors had a big impact on how our systems are designed and, and what they look like. So um, Claw FR uh, has been ready to go. Our, our design op- our design environment that I mentioned, Claw OS, can now accommodate modules up to two and a half meters long. Our, our hardware is designed to accommodate some of these modules. So really right now, the sweet spot is sort of around 2020, uh, 2,200 millimeters, like 2.2, 2.3 meters long is really the bulk of what we're seeing now for projects in 2022. And so, yeah, that's been a big part of what we have been uh, focusing on. You know, there's a bunch of other things we can talk about, right? As it relates to like how these modules go under a roof. I remember when we went from 60 cell to 72 cells. Um, you remember all the contractors were like, wait a minute, I'm playing Tetris on a rooftop project and my Tetris blocks just got bigger. That makes my job even harder. Well, they're having the same sort of conversations right now, right? Like you just took away that one easy block in Tetris that like one by four, you've made that go away. And now that's like a two by four. Um, so those are trade-offs that our customers think about all the time, is, especially as they're designing around a bunch of obstructions on the roof. You know, that's always the, the challenge on rooftop is power density and, and sort of real power density as it translates from, you know, a CAD block or a helioscope onto like a real project where there's vents on the roofs and there's obstructions and there's gas lines that we need to navigate around. And so that's one trade-off. The other thing that's sort of coming into focus to us, there's sort of two more elements to these larger format modules that I think your customers should be aware of, right? The first is cost. Bigger rails, more metal, less packaging efficiency. They're probably seeing that in terms of their modules as well. These uh, some of these larger modules don't pack as cleanly as the older ones do. A little uh, more uh, cost associated with that. The so the decline in the per watt number may still be there, but there is there is an increase in the per module cost uh, for many of these systems, right? So oftentimes that per watt where you are hoping to use, if you go from a 350 to a 450 watt module, you're hoping to see a decrease in per watt pricing. That doesn't always translate because now uh, your per module price has gone up as well. I don't know if these numbers make a ton of sense if off the top of your head. I spend 10 hours a day looking at spreadsheets with different modules and different per price, per watt metrics and per module metrics. And so uh, it's something that our customers ask us about all the time. And so the per watt number may go down a little bit. It may flatline. Uh, the per module pricing uh, may increase a little bit. So there's sort of like a commercial 
consideration around these larger modules, um, but there's also a technical consideration around these modules, right? They're significantly bigger now, which means you've got more surface area. More surface area can translate to, uh, you know, most wind loads and snow loads are always considered in terms of PSF, right? So if you had a P, if you have a 28 square foot module that's now 32 square feet and you have uh, 40 PSF snow load, you've got four more square feet of snow load on that module. And so that is narrowing the use case for some of these larger modules in terms of like the environmental conditions, right? If you're in an area where there's high wind loads or if there's a, if you're on a project with a 80 foot tall roof and you're trying to put modules right around the corner there, you're already experiencing really high wind loads. Well, now you've just made the sail a little bit bigger and there's only so many ballast blocks or only so many attachments you can put at a module before you ultimately just say, well, your sail is too big. And so those are some of the trade-offs that we're just starting to understand. Um, our team has been, you know, uh, we're, we're sort of learning in real time as these modules hit our uh, pipeline, as we start looking at uh, when they can be deployed. Um, I think it's smart to go into these decisions sort of eyes wide open. If I were an integrator, I'd want to understand, um, you know, what's happening on the commercial side of it and what's happening on the technical side of it. Make sense? Indeed, it does. So what I'm hearing you say is that there's a couple of things to keep in mind when you are designing a system, but that there's a lot of opportunity as well. Can you speak to the best use cases for your product line? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, what I think our customers have really zeroed in with CLAFR. Well, first of all, FR stands for flat roof. So yeah, it's really a good idea to put our system on a flat roof. <laughs> um, and then to that end, like we want to have our system on every flat roof, right? If you just, I just flew back into Los Angeles and, you know, you look out the window and there's a sea of flat roofs and we'd love to have uh, solar and all those flat roofs, preferably mounted with our system. So the use case is still commercial rooftops. We think through our partnership with you folks, we have uh, will hopefully have access to you know sort of that small to mid-sized market, which we haven't really been great at tackling. To me, the use case is really anything that's not a residential flat roof should have our system on it. And then as you start considering larger modules, that trade-off between the Tetris you know sort of dilemma that our customers have should be part of that equation when they start thinking about use cases. And then if they are operating in an area where there is a 50 or 60 PSF snow load requirement, if they're in Colorado or in New England, uh, they, should be, they should be paying attention to sort of the mechanical properties of, of their module that they select. It's not just about the racking, it's about you know, the properties of that module. We were we were just talking through some of the best use, use cases for the claw of our solution. We're looking at flat roofs and and then from there it's 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 kind of like really just dependent on the roof's ability to support the system essentially is what you're describing right yeah that's right and one of the dirty little secret secrets about you know cni solar is that not all projects are created equal right projects have different mechanical and structural considerations electrical considerations load load requirements and what's been really powerful with claw fr is that the same essential platform, the same basic components can accommodate modules of various lengths and widths, and they can be configured in dual tilt, in single tilt, in 10 degree with 17 inches worth of spacing or 10 degree with 11 inches worth of spacing. So that's been, that's really opened up, uh, I think, a, a lot of projects that customers are struggling with, right? Or they're competing with. We've had a lot of projects where I'm always surprised when I got into this industry where I thought, Racking really looked sort of like the least complicated. You know, we're not making electrons. We're not, uh, we're, we're just sort of, it's bent metal. Um, but I'm always surprised by how many projects, really their feasibility really hinges on the racking itself. And like, 
how many roof attachments are going to be on my project or how heavy is it? And that's sort of the beauty of Cloth R. A lot of times we look at projects and we'll deliver a layout for it and the structural engineer will take a look at it and they'll say it's too heavy or, you know, the, the site host may say, uh, I'd like to have fewer roof connections on my roof, right? It's a new roof or whatever. And so we're able to go from 10 degree to dual tilt and we're able to offer different flavors of Cloth R uh, to accommodate different, you know, use cases and different, different challenges that different projects have. So, Paul, I'm hearing you talk a lot about how the system is really flexible, but I also heard you earlier speak to some considerations that people need to take into account, right? We mentioned effective wind areas as being one of those. Could you speak more about that? I remember I've been a panel cloth for 11 years, and when we started, and frankly, when a lot of folks started in this space, you know, it was, it was at first really sort of the table stakes were like, hey, do you have wind tunnel testing? You do. Great. Check. Because uh, anybody can, you know, spend fifty thousand dollars and go get a wind tunnel test or whatever. And then a couple of years later, it was like, well, do you have UL twenty seven oh three? And they would say, check. That would, they would sort of those were two the two stable table stakes for deploying flat roof solar. And to some extent, like they really are still today. Uh, the scope of UL twenty seven oh three has expanded a little bit, and people have gotten smarter about wind tunnel testing. Uh, most, you know, reliable racking companies now use boundary layer wind tunnel testing. Almost every racking company, you know, in the U.S. has UL twenty seven oh three. So what we spend a fair amount of time thinking about is, uh, you know, other elements of our system. What type of testing have we done internally? What type of um, algorithms inform our ballasting designs? You know, when you look at, oftentimes, you know, we're in a competitive situation and someone will look at our layout and they'll compare it to uh, another layout. And there may be a difference in sort of what the ballast requirements look like or what the attachment requirements look like. And high level, you can look at our, our architecture versus our legacy architecture versus a competitor's architecture. And if you see a big discrepancy there, it's not because they haven't done wind, wind tunnel testing or it's not because they don't have UL 2703, right? It's because they made some other decisions around engineering and applying those tests. So something that we spend a lot of time thinking about and testing is something called effective wind area or EWAs. And most other racking companies think about this uh, as much as uh, anybody else. Um, years ago, this was a bit, uh, it was sort of a judgment call. There was some discretion around what an effective wind area looks like and how you should test for it. And what, what essentially it does is it tries to capture, you know, the internal characteristics of your racking system and how load is shared within an array. So what that really means is if you've got, you know, let's say a five by five array, does that entire array behave as one mechanically? If you have a block on one corner, what does that do to resist wind? If you have a block on one corner of a module, right? What does that do to help you resist wind loads uh, for a module that's five modules away, right? And so um, EWAs are, are, are traditionally an area where a, a racking company can either knowingly or unknowingly manipulate their wind tunnel testing to deliver results which are maybe more favorable from a commercial standpoint, but not super defendable from a technical standpoint. And so I mentioned earlier with the, with the release of, you know, some of these larger form modules, and now the, the fact that, you know, uh, these modules have much larger spans, they behave differently mechanically, right? There's longer spans now between, you know, where one racking element is and the next. And that's with our system, that's with any other system. And that directly impacts, you know, how the system behaves internally and mechanically and how forces and how loads are transferred within the system from one module to the next, either north, south, or east, west. Uh, so we redid our entire suite of EWA testing. And EWA testing, you know, should look at a bunch of different things, right? It should look at EWAs for modules which are on the edge of an array. 
on the corner of array or on the interior of an array. They should look at modules on corners of arrays. And then you should look at, you know, how are they tested? You could, when you do an EWA test, essentially what you do is you pick a module, you build out a five by five and you pick one module that you're trying to test and you start lifting it, right? And the more modules that are around it that engage, the better. I always think in terms of extremes and you can imagine if we had a grid of structural I-beams in place and I lifted one section of it, almost every module around it would engage. So I could claim that my EWA is five by five, let's just say for example. If we're using another architecture, like one of our older systems, a non-rail-based architecture, you'd lift up one module and you know, not, not every other module engages, right? So that's a smaller EWA. So I would encourage our customers, I guess, what is all this like drilled down to? I would encourage installers that are looking at different racking alternatives and maybe even have sort of an apples to apples comparison uh, for a given project. And if you see a large discrepancy in the attachment requirements or the uh, ballast requirements, ask the racking providers how they're thinking about EWAs and how they can defend that system's ability to share load within itself. Because oftentimes that's sort of, uh, that's the secret lever that racking companies may be using to, you know, deliver results with fewer attachments or fewer ballast blocks. So when you're, when you're doing that testing, how, how do you account for kind of the, the natural differences that would occur depending on where the array is on the roof, just out of curiosity, what do those accommodations look like? You know, cause testing something that's right at the edge of the roof versus a five by five array in the middle of the roof. Yeah, it's super interesting. Like the EWA testing isn't really specific to a module, an array or a module location within a roof. What informs those is the wind tunnel testing. So the wind tunnel testing will give you coefficients, which basically tell you, you know, what the wind loads look like at different locations within the roof, on edges, on corners, or on interiors. Uh, this, a system behaves mechanically the same if it's in one location, sort of irrespective of where on the roof it is. If you're building that five by five, um, it will have that same mechanical strength or the ability, pardon me, the ability to share load, regardless if it's in the corner or if it's in the interior of the roof. What changes are the wind loads that are assigned to it? And we get those values from wind tunnel testing ah, gotcha. rather than uh, effective wind area. So we can, we can build a five by five and we can lift it and, and we can take those characteristics, build them into our algorithms that then inform the ballasting plans. But the wind loads do change based on the inputs from the wind tunnel testing. But you should definitely look at, you know, uh, the, with, within the EWA um, environment, what they're really trying to understand is different locations of modules within an array and how they behave. Because a module that is, you know, surrounded by 10 modules, north, south, east, and west will behave differently in terms of load sharing than a module that's right on the edge or right on the corner. Sure. How does attachment method then figure into that, uh, into those calculations? I imagine that, that it must play some role in EWA. Yeah. Uh, Maybe speak a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. So um, we've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how do we physically hold these modules? <laughs> and um, yeah, for the first six months that uh, the team was thinking about CLIFR, that was sort of the focus of their entire uh, analysis was like, how are we going to hold these modules? Our legacy products used a nut and bolt through the bottom side of the um, flange on the module frame. We've also over the years had products which attached on the short side. We've never had a product that top clamped on uh, on a module. So I guess when we think about module attachments, they, they factor into the EWA because you've got to build in a full scale array and then you need to test it. But we spent also a lot of time thinking about module attachment methods and which which methods sort of provide the lowest, uh, you know, it's a trade-off between risk and between um, installability. So if we can sort of 
bifurcate this conversation into two pieces. Maybe that'll make the most amount of sense. The first one is like, where do you attach the mod? Where do you attach to the module on the module itself? So I always think about, well, let's say a mod module is a meter. Uh, the short side is uh, a meter long and the long side is two meters. Uh, we secure all of our CLAWFR secures to the module on the long side of the module, very close to the module mounting holes. Those are called the airy points, right? And on a beam or a piece of steel, that is those two, where those module points uh, are located, those module mounting points are located, is this are the strongest two positions on that rail to bend to, to secure it. And so we, we believe firmly that, you know, uh, the best place to secure the module is on the long side of the module at or adjacent to the module mounting holes for all those reasons, as opposed to on the short side of the module where, you know, you've got now much longer span. So less ability to accommodate snow loads, less ability to accommodate wind loads. So uh, both of our, all of our products, all the different versions of CLIFR secure the module on the, on the long side of the module near the module mounting hole. But then the next step of it is like, okay, I get that, but where do you attach to the module um, on the frame itself, like on the frame profile? Module manufacturers uh, would prefer you to be about as far away from the glass and the cells as possible. Uh, so one of the requirements that we had as we were developing CLIFR was to be on the same location as our legacy system, which is on that return flange on the bottom side of the module. But we knew, we heard from installers loud and clear that through bolting through that connection is just a time sink. Yeah, uh, you know, it's you really can, tough. We've all drop, done it, right? You come around. You yeah it's it's and then they've got gloves on and it's cold and i mean um it's it's not pretty it's effective but it's not pretty so one of the challenges our team was uh from the very beginning we said guys you've got to continue securing to the modules on the long side of the module and on the return flange and so when you look at the architecture of CLAWFR and if you watch our videos or you look at our installation manual you'll see that we've got a toolless uh, method of securing the module on the low side that involves a cam and a cam claw uh, and then on the high side, there's a spring-loaded lock claw that secures it. So module manufacturer, it is non-standard, right? I mean, there's not like uh, in, in a generic module manufacturer installation manual, there won't be lines there about installing with claw FR. So we've got a, it's forced us to, to become very, very close with the module manufacturers and physically get those modules in-house and test them and mount them with our module, check them for fitment, and then start piling load on top of them to see, you know, how much load those modules can accommodate with this attachment method. So it's been a lot of work, but it's made us really, really smart about, you know, how to secure the modules with without risking the cells, without risking the glass, without potentially creating delaminations and still giving installers, you know, so we sort of have these different audiences that we need to satisfy, right? There's like the asset owner, the developer, uh, the module manufacturers, they're all pleased with now how we're securing the module because we're nowhere near uh, the, the high side of the, of the glass. We're nowhere near their cells or any of the components that are making electrons. Uh, but we've also satisfied the installers now because they're not fumbling around with nuts and bolts. Uh, top clamping is great to install, but there's trade-offs on it uh, that necessarily some of the developers and the asset owners aren't, you know, there's some risk associated with that. So our method, uh, you know, hits on on both fronts. Uh, the installers love it because it, it's toolless, goes in very, very quickly. Um, the asset owners like it because it's away from the glass. So, Paul, it sounds like there's just a lot of exciting stuff happening over at Panel Claw with your Claw FR product and everything. And we're really excited to partner with you on this. I know from a sales perspective, we've had lots of customers coming to us really excited about this new offering, trying to figure out what the next steps are. Can you give us a really rounded view of what we should be telling installers? Take, take the time. Tell them yourselves. What, should, what do they need to know? Well, sure. So, um... 
there's a ton of information online. Um, here's where, here's sort of how uh, I think about the product high level and then maybe what the first steps are and sort of a realistic snapshot of where we're at today with, with our Baywa partnership. Yeah, or if you haven't tried it, um, I'd love for you to give it a shot. Um, we, especially if you're looking at, you know, something in the 100 to 100 or 100 to 500 kilowatt project, and maybe you haven't tried Clifar yet, I think you'll find that um, in terms of designing with the system, there's a bunch of uh, configurability to it. You can get more modules per square foot typically with our system. And generally, the ballast results are, are really favorable. Um, we, we have a semi-rigid system that allows you to, uh, you know, leverage the strength of that ballast block or that roof attachment across more modules, EWAs, than, uh, than you can with a non-rail-based system. So I'd love to, you know, if you haven't tried our system, that's our pitch. Uh, I think you'd be happy with what the system looks like from a performance standpoint. And then as it moves through uh, permitting and procurement and construction, the other sort of main pitch that's come into, into focus for us is that the system installs really, really fast. Everybody, every racking salesperson says that. So I, I say it almost with an embedded eye roll, but uh, really what, you know, what, what our customers are telling us is that their ability to manage their subcontractors on a project, to have a mechanical team come out and build the racking, have a roofer come in, install roof attachments if needed, have their electricians plan out all their home runs, and then come in and hang the modules and the MLPs and do all the finish work together. It makes it very, very efficient. All the hardware goes together with one bolt. All the modules are hung without any tools, without any uh, hardware, and it allows for a really, really fast installation that is uh, should meet all your requirements. And then, oh, by the way, you know it's designed to really maintain really well, so you can get in and, and remove one module really easily. Uh, the system features steel that's coated with uh, a zinc, aluminum, magnesium alloy, so a corrosion uh, resistance is, is better than uh, standard G90. There's a bunch of great features about the system and there's a bunch of information. We just finished a webinar um, a few weeks or so ago that I would encourage you to check out if you haven't. It gets into much more details about the nuts and bolts of CLAWFR. With respect to our relationship right now with Baywa, uh, I sort of use the walk or crawl, walk, run cliche. Uh, we're still crawling, but we're getting ready to start walking. Um, so uh, one of the reasons we have not been able in the distribution space for uh, the last 11 years is we've not had a design assistant, uh, an online configurator for our partners to be able to go in and generate drawings and, and bill of materials. So we have one now uh, that we are using internally at PanelClaw and Baywa will be bringing on some folks uh, to support that in the in the near term, but right now, you know, I think our, our target project is somewhere in the hundred uh, hundred kilowatt and up range. If uh, if you've got something you're looking at with that, we're 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 working it through through the process the way we would any of our other projects, where we our, our team will deliver a, a layout to you. Uh, you can you can file those projects uh, through PanelCloud directly on our website. Just identify yourself as a Baywa customer, uh, and we'll get it we'll get it back to you. You can also flow it through your Baywa salesperson. As long as it's over 100 kilowatts uh, and you like what you see, we've got CAD blocks online. Um, we'd be happy to take a look at any projects that that make sense. Um, I would think later this year. Once the design assistant is up and running, uh, you'll be able to get instant layouts yourself, bill of materials. You'll be able to bring those to your Baywa sales rep and, and get quotes right away. Well, yeah. you heard the man. I am if the VP of sales. Any... So I had to end with a <laughs> sales pitch tyranny, even though this was tech talk. <laughs>
If you have any other questions, you should check out the webinar for more detailed information about the product and check, connect with your panel claw or Baywa rep to see how you can get the best product for your project. Yeah, absolutely. We'll add some links in the show notes so that everyone can access the resources we've described today. And I want to thank you, Paul, for you and your team's time for joining us today and for the, uh, the webinar that we did together a week or so ago. We're really off to a great start here and we're really looking forward to building some amazing systems with you and with our customers in the future. Thank you for having me. I'm hoping to do it again. Uh, there's a, a lot to talk about. The solar industry is, uh, we're still toddlers here in terms of uh, the arc of what we're trying to accomplish, right? And uh, the team at Panelclaw is hard at work. So hope, I hope to be back uh, at some point soon sharing with you uh, what we're up to now. We'll be looking forward to it. Indeed. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, you guys. Man, I could not wait to get our first order of Panelclaw in. I, I, I've been watching them for a while. I love their product. They have been refining it for the last 10 years. ClawFR is simple. It's easy to order, easy to use. The product is resilient. It can be used on flat roofs of multiple configurations. So I, I really think that when we finally get our first orders of ClawFR and see our first customers' res responses to their first installations, that, that we're going to be hearing good things. I'm very excited. And I'm so proud that they chose Baywa as their partner uh, when they're entering the distribution space really for the first time in a long time. So it just gives me the warm and fuzzies. Yeah. Yeah. And they've been a fantastic team to work with. You know, yeah. they're really a bunch of talented folks over there. So I, I guess I can't say I'm excited again, but I want to say I'm excited again. <laughs> <laughs> say it. I'm excited again, Terry. All right. Me too. Well, I guess that leads us into the next thing that we wanted to talk about. And we had a quick conversation with Clark Galloway, who's in our in Florida, chatting with all the different solar installers down there. And he had a lot to say about the rally that they recently held in conjunction with Flacia uh, that to take a stand against the net energy metering practices that they are talking about changing down there. So let's jump into our conversation with Clark and see what he has to say. Clark, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. We're here with Clark Galloway. He's a regional account manager for Southeastern USA, and he's here to tell us more about some of the policies that are on the docket in Florida and the impact that they may have for the solar industry in that state. So Clark, why don't you start off by giving us a little bit of context? Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the recent policy initiatives that are up for a vote in the Florida legislature and, and what the impacts might be? Absolutely. So essentially what we're up against down here in Florida is a uh, bill. We have uh, the state bill 1024 shortened to SB 1024 and House Bill 741, which are threatening to basically decimate the net metering benefits of, of our homeowners here in Florida, which ultimately are just going to affect uh, solar jobs across the board from um, installers to distributors and, and everyone else in between. Yeah, thanks for that. We've we've been kind of on you've been on the ground uh, at solar rallies and things. Can you talk about the Save Our Solar rally that happened on February 8th? Yes, absolutely. At the state capitol here in Tallahassee, Florida, I've got my uh, beautiful poster behind me, um, not only as proof that I was there, but as a reminder of what we're really ultimately doing here, which is saving the solar here in the Sunshine State. 
it was not only a momentous day to be there at the Tallahassee Capitol for the rally, but it was a historic day for um, for solar here in Florida. So one thing I noticed was um, it was bringing everyone in attendance to be there for each other and to say, hey, I care about you. I care about your livelihood. Um, you know, not only do we care about this wonderful, thriving and growing industry here in Florida, but it was a very emotional and um, compassionate collection of people. And it was really, really great. And uh, and looking back in hindsight, it was just an amazing time to be there together and celebrate what we've all accomplished here. So the fact that this, these bills could potentially remove that and and decimate, you know, this uh, this striving industry is really hard to uh, to really stomach right now. I love that one of your key takeaways was just like that sense of community. I feel like the solar industry it's still pretty small. You know, we're still kind of at the beginning of of where we're going to go. And we do have that really tight knit community. And I think that's just a really important thing to highlight, right? We don't want to leave that in the dust. We want to have these rules so that we can keep our jobs and make a change in the world and build this community into something even greater. So speaking of community, can you give us an idea of what your customers are saying about the new rules and, and how that's going to impact them? Absolutely. So. Um... Even with just the potential passing of this bill, installers in the state of Florida are already being affected. Homeowners are reluctant to go solar because they want to know what the outcome of this bill will already be, which is um, already reducing you know, the number of installs my customers are going through um, now before we even have an answer, which we will very soon, unfortunately. But ultimately, you know, this is going to be a huge um, deficit to their overall sales for homeowners because of the benefits of net metering and how it brings those opportunities to the table for um, for folks here in Florida. So not only are we already getting hit and the, uh, the industry is already being shaken up a little bit, but that's just the beginning if this were to pass. So we've seen similar attempts with similar proposed legislation in, in other states. It, it's incredible that these that these solar policies that are generally very, very popular. I mean, I, I've, I've seen numbers that in Florida, the current net metering policy is supported by 93% of Florida voters. So, you know, these incredibly popular policies are, are almost getting drowned out by the utilities kind of out there spreading a false narrative that, you know, to make sure that folks are protected from high energy costs in the future and not subsidizing their neighbor's solar energy system, what we need to do as an industry is hold the ladder up from anybody else hoping to get onto the solar train and make sure that they have less access to solar energy and less equitable access. I, I would guess that one of the reasons that your customers are saying that they're seeing fewer deals inked right now, even though the legislation is, is still, as we record, um, currently pending a vote, right? It's, it's just proposed at this point. But we're seeing fewer deals inked right now, likely because the way that this legislation is structured, it would actually only grandfather in those deals that are signed today before the legislation is in effect for the next 10 years. And so the economics of any solar deal that's signed today could potentially be impacted, right? These systems last 25 years. Often the financing products are, are getting up into that, you know, 10, 20, 25 year range, depending on what you're looking at. And that puts customers' investments at risk, right? Um, exactly. And a lot of installers, not only are they worried about future business, they're worried about their present homeowners taking care of them and their past homeowners, whether it was five years ago, 10 years ago, or 10 days ago, what is that going to look like long-term for them as well? Because they would also be affected. Yeah, we really all do benefit from a healthy solar industry, from a solar industry where there's 
lots of great competition. And in scenarios like this, where you look at the solar industry shrinking precipitously because of what is, in my opinion, bad legislation, what you're going to have is less competition in the marketplace, right? There's going to be less pressure for people to innovate. There's going to be less pressure for businesses to take care of customers um, because, you know, the, the there will still be demand, but there will be fewer installers in each region supporting that demand. And, you know, the, the impact for solar customers and for the industry on the whole just isn't going to be great. So, Clark, thank you so much for joining us. I would like to end the segment on what do you think are actions that we can take as installers, as solar distributors, however, wherever we are in the sales solar world, what can we do to make an impact today? The silver lining I really received, not only at the rally, but following was that the industry is all coming together and for the same goal. So going forward in the future, let's just keep that same mindset is that we're all in this together. We're all in this to support each other. And, uh, and most importantly, we're trying to promote a healthy, competitive solar landscape. And uh, that's great for the industry. That's great for growth. And we just want to keep that going and, and keep this business um, thriving and growing into the future. I love it. Thanks, Clark. Thank you so much. Clark was only one of a big group here at Baywa who were working really hard on this issue and making sure that Baywa was helping to rally installers in Florida and generally helping to get people out to this event. So thank you, Clark. Thank you to Raina. Thank you to Preston. Thank you to everybody who was involved in that. I think we made a big impact that day. And I think it's just so important what we've done and what we are working towards, right? By being active participants in our policy decisions, we can help make the future better and help drive our industry forward. Yeah. So Tierney, looking forward in, in 2022, what's on your radar? What, what's something you're excited about? So one of the things that's happening next on my agenda is the NABSEP conference, which is coming to Phoenix in my home state of Arizona uh, here in late March. One of the things that I'd like to highlight, ding ding, uh, is Baywa is a platinum sponsor this year. And for the first time, we're hosting two training sessions, one on growing your business in 2022, and another on the importance of company culture as it drives your business forward. So if you're gonna be at NABSEP, make sure to come by and say hi. Yes, yeah, and we're also gonna have a games area set up where folks can come by and hang out. Uh, we'll have some big checkers going, some cornhole, uh, even some putt-putt set up. So if you're going to be at NABSEP and you want to come by and say hello, come meet Tierney and myself, uh, come to our games area and we'll see you there. That's where I'll be at the games. <laughs> I'll probably be in the classes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, we'll tag team it. Exactly. That, that sounds fair. That sounds fair. All right. Uh, that's it for our show today. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next time. <laughs>